This is episode 48 of Off Script with Trish Glose, intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my mic today, I have Dr. Robert Jensen. Hello. Hi. You are with Jensen Center for Cosmetic and Plastic Surgery. Correct. Okay. You've been here a while. Uh, in almost Medford? 30 years. Wow. 1991. I would say longer than a while. Yeah. Um, I understand you're super excited to do this. Um, <laughs> you, you got roped into this by my BFF. Kim Hagert, yep. who works for you. Correct, yep. What do you think about Kim Hagert? Uh, she's outstanding. She is outstanding. Yeah, she's uh, the face of our practice. So. Ah, she's pretty so. She's pretty fantastic. But she suggested you. She said uh, Dr. J would be so good at your podcast. That's what she well, said. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> we will find out, Kim. And then, um, yeah, if, if you're really awful at this, then, yeah, then uh, we know. I'll give her crap big time. <laughs> no, just kidding. I know you're going to be fantastic. Um, where are you from originally? So I was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Wow, you're yeah. a Canadian. Yeah, I have dual, citizen, dual citizenship, but yeah. Born in Calgary, lived there for 13 years. My dad was a geologist, moved to Mexico Wow. In 1970. You were 13 when you moved uh -huh. to Mexico? Yeah, I was thrown into a Spanish-speaking Catholic boys' school at the age of 13 and spent three years down there, then moved to Arizona for a year, Utah, uh, then went to Japan for a couple years, hmm. and then back to the States, and I've been back in the States ever since. Okay. So, Canada, how, what was that like? So living in Alberta is very similar, I think, to living in Oregon. It's very mountainous, beautiful countryside, lots to do outdoors. Mm -hmm. um, I grew up in southern Alberta. We had a, uh, in Canada, you can own cabins in the national parks. Oh, nice. So we had a cabin on the Canadian side of Glacier National Park, which is called Waterton. So I was very fortunate to spend all my summers as a kid growing up in Waterton. That sounds a little bit like a fantasy yeah, land. Yeah. And then what was it like going from Canada to Mexico? I'm sure that was a culture shock. It was a huge culture shock. Yeah. And, since, and I was kind of, kind of felt thrown into it. I didn't speak any Spanish, so, and nobody spoke English in the school, so right. it was uh, sink or swim. So first uh, couple months were very, very rough. Did you find though that at some point you picked up the language pretty quick? Because you had to? Oh, I, I think language was never a real passion of mine, you know, sure. to learn it. So I, I felt more like forced to do it. Mm. So, I mean, I, I think I learned what I had to to get by. Yeah. And no more. How long were you in Mexico? You said three Two years? Two years, yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, can you speak Spanish now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You good fluent? Enough. Uh, good enough to get by. Okay. Good enough to, if you were, yeah. if you traveled there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Exactly. I'm jealous of people who who can speak two languages. I minored in Spanish. Uh -huh. it, I mean, nine years I took Spanish all yeah. through high school and college. And I just, I can't. I'm I think some people have a real affinity to it. Mm -hmm. And I think my observations that people that like to converse a lot. Yeah. It's like anything else. They practice it. Sure. I talk all the time. I know. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, what did you do in Japan? Why travel so there? I was a Mormon missionary for two years. Oh, so you did your mission yeah. in Japan. Yep, exactly. So I had wow. to learn another language. Yeah. So my s Japanese had a Spanish accent. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Seriously, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. What was that like? 
It was hard work. Yeah. Really, really hard work. Because, again, you're going from door to door. Mm -hmm. You're expected to engage people constantly and sure. strike up conversations. And that's something that I wasn't really fond of doing. How old were you? 19. 19. That's yeah. tough. Yeah. It was a growing experience, like going in the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go in and you're on your own for two years and come mm -hmm. back home and you do a lot of growing. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to your dad. He said, uh, you said he was a geologist. Correct. What did mom do? So mom was stay at home mom until we were all gone. And then she, she used to work for a, she was, um, for a uh, gas company. She okay. was the public relations person for nice. a big gas company in Utah. Okay. And then what kind of geology work did your dad do? So he was a mining engineer. His, pr his primary expertise was copper, open pit copper mines. Ooh. So that's why we we're in Mexico because there's a lot of copper in Mexico. Very cool. Yeah. Interesting. Did you grow up with siblings? Two brothers, two sisters. Yep. Wow. Yeah, two older and two younger. No, one younger. Three older, one younger. So you're like right smack dab in yeah, the middle. Number four. Yeah. 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 Number four. Yeah. Um, so you go to – what happened after – Japan and your mission. You come back to the States. So yeah, the day after I got back from Japan, I st went right back to college, the mm -hmm. day, exactly the day after, um, University of Utah, undergraduate. Um, spent uh, two more years in college and then went to medical school in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University. Did you know you wanted to be a doctor of some sort? Yeah, ever since I was about eight or nine. Really? Yeah. That young? Yeah. Why? Well, I had a uncle who was uh, a cardiac heart surgeon, mm -hmm. and he was kind of godlike to me. I thought mm. this guy is amazing what he did. Nice. And so that's what I wanted to do. I mean, he was my kind of. Mm -hmm. Did you ever flip flop as far as what field of medicine you wanted to go in? Yeah, to? I mean, I I went to medical school with the intention of becoming a heart surgeon. Um, but, uh, obviously changed my mind when I was in medical school. Um, I did back-to-back -back rotations at Walter Reed Army Hospital. Uh, it was one of the hospitals we rotated through. And the first month there, I did, uh, a month of cardiac surgery and mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun. Got up at 5 a.m., went sure. home at 9 or 10. Wow. I uh, never saw the daylight. Huh. The patients were miserable. The doctors were miserable. The nurses were miserable. And then the very next month, I did plastic surgery, same hospital, got that at 8 and 9, went home at 2 or 3. The nurses were happy. The patients were ecstatic to be there. Interesting. This is all at Walter Reed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, why do you think it was so different? Between the two yeah. disciplines? Well, I, I think, uh, again, most people there for heart surgery don't want to be there. True. They have to. It's life-saving. People who are in plastic surgery, they want to be there. They want to get something fixed. It's, and I think a lot of it, too, was the attitude of the program director. Mm -hmm. um, he, he loved, you could just tell he loved what he did. Mm -hmm. It was very infectious. What so. kind of patients were you seeing at Walter Reed? So you saw cosmetic, but you also saw a lot of reconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's an army hospital. So sure. uh, you saw a lot of, uh, you know, putting people's lives back together. Yeah. Well, like, like what? Like what was an example of a plastic surgery you did? Uh, so, uh, mandible, re any kind of reconstruction, you know, after cancer surgery, uh, whether it's head and neck, uh, breasts, mm -hmm. extremities, mm -hmm. trauma to the extremities, 
where they have large open wounds that they can't close. You can go in and transfer muscle from your back to the leg and things like that. Crazy. That's yeah. crazy to me. Um, were you seeing guys who and gals who, because um, these are veterans. Correct, but it's in the 80s, right. so 1982, so I don't think we had much in the way of active military mm-hmm. injuries. So, uh, And most of the Vietnam vets and stuff that we saw were being seen at, at VA hospitals. You wouldn't see them. You wouldn't see, so you didn't see a whole lot of, Right. Of actual trauma. It was mostly doctors, doctors, wives who needed kind of more non-emergent care. Gotcha. I think, well, I know for me, when I think of plastic surgery, the first thing that comes to my mind is breast augmentation Mm -hmm. or something with the face, like a facelift or something like that. It goes so far beyond that. True. I mean, as a resident, you do very little cosmetic surgery. So most of what you do is reconstruction, re- reconstructive surgery. So, right. And again, you know, the, some of the procedures we learned date back 2,000 years, like nose reconstruction that were developed yeah. by uh, uh, India back then. But, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it evo- came out of, uh, of World War I and World War II. A mm-hmm. lot of the reconstructive uh, procedures we do today came out of war procedures. For sure, for sure. So speaking of uh, George Washington University Hospital, what were you doing there specifically? So at George, I was at medical school. Medical school. So, so, right. So we were there in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So 1980 to 1984, the Reagan years. We were actually there when they brought Reagan in. I know. I was just going to bring that up. March 30th, 1981, yep. coming up on that anniversary. That's when President Reagan was shot. Shot, yeah. Total and chaos. In the hospital. In the hospital. How yeah. so? Because it's oh, a president, obviously. Yeah. Uh, Secret Service running up and down through the hallways, the stairwells, clearing people out carrying guns, machine guns, running into the ORs, clearing out the ORs. I mean, it was total chaos. Wow. And then they had, uh, for weeks after, you know, machine guns up on top of the roofs, uh, dogs Mm -hmm. patrolling. I mean, certainly extremely heightened security. Right. And if, you know, if you were alive in 1981, everyone remembers that day. Yep. Okay. Um, I looked looked that up a little bit, history.com. Really funny stuff, and this is just classic, you know, President Reagan. Um, he told his wife, Nancy, honey, I forgot to duck. I just thought that was, was the cutest thing ever. And I think he told the surgeons, please tell me you're Republicans, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is hilarious. But anyways, um, he signed legislation the next day. I mean, he in the hospital bed, so he recovered very well. Yeah. No, it was, he was very lucky. It missed everything. Everything. Yeah. That's crazy. So you wrapped that up in 84. Um, You knew you wanted to be a plastic surgeon. Yep. Okay. At that point. Where do you move from there? So I moved to New Jersey Mm -hmm. to um, uh, St. Barnabas Medical Center and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Wow. So I spent uh, five years there. And most programs in plastic surgery want you to have training in general surgery. So almost every single plastic surgeon has already done five years and is actually a board certified general surgeon. So we do five years of general surgery uh, and then apply again for a plastic surgery residency. Interesting. Okay. So you were on the East Coast for how long? 11. Well, 
So medical school was four years, yep. five years in New York, and then two years in Cleveland for plastic surgery. Gosh, you've got to been all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. What brought you to Southern Oregon? Um, so I have family here. Mm-hmm. Um, was looking for some place in the Northwest, kind of similar to Calgary. Mm-hmm. And uh, they needed a plastic surgeon here, so it kind of fit the bill. Wow. And you've been here ever since. Yep. That's interesting. Did it remind you of home a little bit? or A lot, yeah. yeah. I mean, the trees and the outdoors and the lakes and the rivers. And mm-hmm. Speaking of rivers, I did ask Kim for a little bit of dirt on you. Okay. So yeah, you can, you can get, she can be in trouble <laughs> for that later. Um, you Uh-oh. were a fishing guide. Correct. When, when were you a fishing guide? So in, uh, as a senior in high school. Oh, so nice. My, yeah, my oldest brother uh, was an attorney, and one of his clients owned a fishing camp in the Northwest Territories. And so his, can- his tagline was the world's northernmost fishing camp. And we were 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So we were further north than Barrows, Alaska. Wow. Yeah, and so we, uh, we flew out in float planes every day and took p- people fishing from our base camp. But it was way up there. What was that like? It was, it was again, hard work because, you know, a fishing guide, you just don't sit in a boat all day. But you have to transport all the supplies from the airstrip to mm-hmm. the camp. And um, it was a lot of fun. I went with my brother and, and actually a cousin, too. So That must have been a blast. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. What were you fishing for? Arctic char. Arctic so, char. So it's kind of like salmon or steelhead. They're mm-hmm. brilliant, almost fluorescent orange, about the same size. But uh, they don't uh, die after they spawn, so they go back out into the ocean. Oh, okay. So they're very, very tasty fish. Mm, yeah. Tasty fish. Yeah. And that's, was that the draw for people who wanted to go yeah. fishing? Yeah, Just it was the Arctic char. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was it cold? It was. I mean, not freezing, but I wore do- down coat pretty mm-hmm. much most of the time. Okay. It's cold in the water, still ice on the water, so you're in these little tin boats and... Ugh. Sounds awful. (laughs) No, it was fun. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you had a blast. She also told me you were a long-haul truck driver. So we drove, my brother and I, same brother and I, he got me this job uh, driving semis (laughs) for a place. When was this? This is in medical school in summer. So guy asked me if I'd ever drove a truck before. I said, oh, sure. And so he hired me. I went down that weekend, rented a truck, and got my license. Never driven a truck before, but um, so the first few times I went out with my brother and mm-hmm. he taught me how to drive a truck, a semi. Yeah, it's a semi. Yeah, yeah, big 18-wheeler. Okay, so how old were you at this point in life? Probably 22. Okay, yeah. what what was your biggest complaint being a long-haul truck driver? I, none. I, none? I, I loved it. Really? Oh, yeah. How, well, how come? Uh, it's just fun. I mean, you get to travel all over the western United States and... Um, get paid really well mm-hmm. and the the what it was is it was we were delivering frozen king crabs legs whole salmon and uh, shrimp and what we do is visit Kiwanis and Lions Clubs and they would set up a salesman to go ahead of us set up a sales event so it was money raising so we'd pull up in the truck open up the back door and sell the seafood out of the back of it. So nice. you got to meet all these great people throughout the Midwest, these mm-hmm. little communities, and they're all amazing. What was the motivation to drive a truck 
in the summer for a job? Money. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Pay, pay for medical school. Pay for medical school. Yeah. Yeah, because medical school, it, it ain't cheap. No. No, not cheap. Uh, any complaints with other dri- I mean, we've interviewed, you know, semi-truck drivers all the time, and they're just like, oh, people in their small vehicles whipping around us. Did you have any? Just once had a guy in a, a uh, Corvette who was merging onto the highway, and I was in the the right lane, and then there was another truck on my side, so I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. So he just kept inching forward, expecting me to move, and I couldn't. And he eventually had to slam on his brakes. And then he pulled around in front of me and slowed way down. I thought that's not really bright because <laughs> you're in a fiberglass car. And mm-hmm. were there any hand gestures? Not very often. <laughs> No one, no, no one giving you the finger. No, it was really fun. It but actually was a lot of fun. Hard work. I'm sure if I did it for a whole lifetime, it would get tiring. Yeah. But no, it was fun. Oh, Exciting. I'm sure. Yeah. And and also there was an end to it. It was a, it's a temporary yeah, it was, job. Yeah, three months. Yeah. Um, is it hard to drive a truck that large? No. no. No, I don't think so. I mean, some of the the trucks we had back then didn't have uh, power steering and. They didn't. A lot mm. of the trucks now are automatic. Yeah. But back then you had 16 gears or whatever and Jeez. two, two axles. So you had to to uh, down gear. You'd have to match RPMs. You didn't use your clutch. So it took a little bit of talent. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Um, okay. So you come to Southern Oregon. You open up the center for plastic surgery. Uh, I was with another physician for a couple years and then went out on my own. Okay, went out on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the decision to do that? Just because you wanted your own place? Um, yeah, I've, I think uh, most pl- plastic surgeons prefer to be on their own. I, I, you know, there's it's probably the last bastion of private practice because everybody else in medicine nowadays either is owned by a hospital or or a big group. But I, I think there's a lot of advantages to being on your own. I mean, there's four plastic surgeons in the valley. We get along really well. That's great. We meet every quarter, uh, and we cover for each other. And um, so we're kind of a group, but not really. And, you know, you have your own place. You make all your own decisions. Mm-hmm. So and yeah. I don't think anybody could work with me anyhow. So. <laughs> uh, let's talk about plastic surgery. I mean, you've done uh, guesstimate. How many surgeries do you think you've done? Oh, 25, 30,000. 30,000 surgeries. Yeah. That's insane to think about. Um, and everything from, you know, you kind of went through it, but a lot of reconstruction? Or yeah, so when I first came to town, we did one of the very first uh, transplants, uh, you know, free flaps. So for a guy that shot off his leg and he's trying to jump out of a car and get a deer, um, <laughs> he blew off. Wait, um, okay, wait, back up. He was He was shooting... He was driving and then uh, saw a deer, grabbed his gun, jumped out of the car, and ended up shooting off the back of his leg. How is that even possible? I don't know. This is back (laughs) in the early 90s. But, um, yeah, we we did, uh, I think, the very, very first free flap in in southern Oregon back then. You said free flap? So it wasn't free, free. Right. (laughs) When we say mean free flap, it's... uh, it's a transplant. So we take a muscle <laughs> right. with its artery and nerve mm-hmm. and then detach it from the back, your latissimus, and then move it to the leg and find another artery and vein and then hook it up under the microscope and then cover what's missing back there and then cover that with a skin graft. 
Wow. So that sounds yeah. highly risky with uh, arteries, no? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it, 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 I think once you've have it perfected and, you know, it's, it's pretty low risk nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't do it anymore. Nobody in Southern Oregon does that anymore. So you usually have to go to a, a teaching hospital like OHSU or San Francisco to get something like that done. Uh, why, why is that? Why don't you do it here anymore? We do, I just don't do enough of them. Oh, I see. There aren't enough to do. And I think it's such a technical operation that if you don't do it enough, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Good point there. Was that the most interesting or bizarre surgery you've ever done? Uh, well, I mean, it, we, we did a, a young kid from, oh, where was it? Somewhere in Eastern Europe that was in that Bosnian war. He got burned really bad, electrical burn, and had a huge uh, defect in his scalp and some necrotic skull, and one of the neurosurgeons and I replaced his, uh, basically reconstructed his skull and head. Wow. Yeah, young guy. Wow. So That was probably one of the most interesting, you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that here? That was here at Rogue Valley, yeah. Wow. Yeah, they brought him over just for that. So Really? Yeah. Was he living here at the time? Or? No, I don't remember, recall what, how he came to. Wow. Some uh, relief organization, I think. That, okay. Yeah. Nice. Um, so you've done all sorts of surgeries. Again, everything from, have you done facelift? Do you do facelifts? About two or three a week. Two or three a week? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's all, very common. And like these are Southern Oregon patients or yeah. people traveling from out of the area? Mostly Southern Oregon, Northern California. Wow. Um, Klamath Falls, kind of the whole southern yeah. Oregon region, yeah. Do you see someone when you're out and about and you're like, I did that face? Uh, all Sometimes. the time. All the time? <laughs> <laughs> and then the other side, do you ever see someone and you're like, mm, I could fix that nose? Not as much as I used to. Yeah. When I first started practice, yeah, I'd pr- pretty much analyze everybody, but now I don't, yeah. don't even think about it. Well, yeah, probably because that probably gets old after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other interesting, and I'm, do you do a lot of uh, reconstruction after, like, breast cancer, for instance? Uh, I used to do a lot. Um, I try not to do too much in the hospital anymore just because it's more efficient, and I, I think I do a better job in my own surgery center. In mm-hmm. my office, we have three operating rooms, so I think I do a better job. Um, there are, you know, there are the three other plastic surgeons in town do all, almost all of that breast reconstruction. So mm. nowadays we do one, one or two cases a month is all, but it used to be one or two cases a day that we do. So Right. Because, I mean, I, I'm getting that plastic surgery doesn't just apply to a few body parts. It's really kind of everything. Everything, right. They're more general surgeons than general surgeons, I think, in a lot of ways. Cause yeah. We, we, yeah, we... we operate on every part of the body. Right. So you yeah. kind of have to know every mm-hmm. part of the body yeah. and the veins and the arteries and how they work and how they connect. Yeah. Which bone connects to which bone. Yeah. I could give you a, a pop quiz, <laughs> but I don't know any don't. of that. <laughs> and, don't. and what do you think it is about, I mean, plastic surgery is so special. It's a specialized field, but it's not really specialized because again, you're working on so I think there there are just, you know, certain principles of surgery that you learn. So, I mean, they can be applied to almost every part of the body. 
just different anatomic regions. But yeah, you can perform the same operation basically on just about any part of the body. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, once you've learned those principles, then you can apply it yeah. anywhere you need to. Well, and I'm sure for a, a lot of your patients, it's cosmetic and it's just something that they want to change about themselves. But a lot of it too, you're, you're changing lives in a sense where there's something something on this person and you're fixing it. Yeah, so I mean, cosmetic and reconstructive surgery go a lot hand in hand because, um, you know, if there's something wrong functionally with somebody, it, there's also something wrong with how it looks too. And uh, to, you know, to give an example, you know, somebody who's had massive weight loss and they have skin hanging everywhere. Right. It can be very functionally inhibiting. Uh, but even because, even despite that, insurance doesn't cover it because they don't consider it reconstructive. But once you remove that, they look and feel a thousand times better. I'm sure. Their yeah. life has just been changed. Right. Especially when you go through something like weight loss and you've lost, let's say, 100 pounds, and you have yep. this new body, you yes. want everything else to work along with it. Yep, correct. That's, that's awesome, actually. Um, there have been a lot of, you know, we've done stories on uh, breast augmentations, for instance, that have gone horribly wrong, mm. where, um, is it silicone? Silicone. Is leaking or something like that. Yeah, I mean, silicone implants have been around since the 60s. It's so, crazy. Um, Actually, the very first silicone implants were much better than, the, I think, than the ones they put in the 80s because the earliest silicone implants were quite thick. The gel is more like a gummy bear, which is what we use today. Okay. But as they got progressed further along, they tried to get a more like a caro syrup type consistency. Gotcha. And if you put that in, y you could hardly tell that there was an implant in there, which was great. The problem was that the shells were very flimsy and almost all of them broke down within 10 years. And you'd see as high as 30% incidence of capsular contracture, hardening of the breast. And so now we'll probably see less than 5%, but the, you know, we've totally changed the, what the, I haven't, but manufacturers have changed yeah. what, what the implants, how sturdy they are, what they're made out of. And so there, there are a lot less complications with them. Yeah, and is that because of what was coming out of all of these surgeries after a decade or so? Yeah, I, I think, you know, with with an incidence of 30% capsular contracture, that's unacceptable. You know, again, back in the 60s, there were very few medical device laws. You can kind of put it in, in whatever you wanted into somebody. And then by the 80s, people were complaining that the, of these capsular contractures and other events and, and, and blamed the implants. Well, the FDA, when all these complaints came out, said, we don't know if these things are safe. Nobody's ever done the proper studies on them. Mm -hmm. Our hands are tied. You guys were actually supposed to do these studies. Uh, we're going to pull them from the market. You do the studies. If they're safe, we'll put them back on the market. And it wow. took them 17 years to complete those studies. So it was from about 91 to about 2007. Yeah, about 2007 before they decided that these things were okay, that they didn't they cause any disease. The implants? Right. Okay, so what happened in the meantime? So in the meantime, they were just saline. Saline. Filled with salt water, yeah. That's right. So and those were available throughout that whole period. And your preference is silicone? I think you get a better result with silicone. Mm -hmm. They're softer, they're more natural, they feel better, they look better, they're lighter, they stay up better. Hmm but they're not a lifetime product. It's like a set of tires. You probably ought to replace them every 10 or 15 years. Don't, really? Yeah. 
Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So if you have a if you have a Im- implants today, in about ten years, they would need to be replaced. Correct. Saline, on the other hand, you could. It's. I think it's fine to let them go, till they were rupture leak. Really. Yeah. What happens if you wait with a silicone till rupture leak? You could get capsular contracture. It's not a health risk. It just means that it doesn't feel or look as good. Okay, a rupture. Right. So the implant actually. You might get a small tear. It's like anything else, you know. They get wear and tear. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They haven't been able to develop one that's going to last 100 years. That's crazy to me. So if there's a a rip or a tear, you have to get that fixed. You can't just let it go. You can. Again, it's not going to cause any health problems, but it could cause caps or contracture or hardening the breast. And that's not a a health risk. It's just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It looks bad. It looks bad. That's what I was going to ask you. Does it like... Changes the shape, browns up, moves up. Yikes. Yeah, that sounds incredibly uncomfortable. And you said saline will actually last a longer time? Well... If one ruptures, you're not going to get capsular contracture. Okay. That's why you could wait until it does rupture a leak. And mm-hmm. the incidence of rupture a leak for both of them is about 1% per year. So 10 years, 10% of them ruptured, 20 years, 20%. Is it up to the patient what they want? Or? Absolutely. Okay. I was wondering if who decides what kind of implant they get. No, it's uh, totally up to the patient. Mm-hmm. So the only thing is the FDA has said anybody under 22 years of age cannot have silicone. How come? I don't know. It's the, it's the <laughs> most bizarre That is, thing. 22? 22. I don't know where they came up with that number or how they came up with it, but 22 and younger, you're only allowed to have saline. All right. So I mean, that doesn't make it. what it is. Yeah. It's a law. Um, for, let's say, a breast augmentation, how long does that surgery take? Uh, about 40 minutes. Wow. That's yeah. quick. Yeah. It's not a long operation. Wow. That's, um, I had an animal ophthalmologist mm-hmm. on the podcast mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was just at a surgery where she removed a dog's eyeball. Mm-hmm. And it took like five minutes or 10 minutes, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It was just shocking to me. I mean, the prep took longer than the right. actual surgery. Right. Is Starting that, an IV. Is that the case everything. with free? A lot of times. I mean, it takes probably half hour to get the patient ready. Mm-hmm. So. What goes into getting a patient ready for? Uh, plastic surgery? Uh, for most procedures that are done under sedation, you start IV, get them comfortable once, and give them a little sedation, then mm-hmm. prep the operative site and drape them off with sterile towels, and that's about it. Give them the good drugs yeah. to knock them out. Yeah. Like what? Propofol, Versed, Demerol. Nice. Ketamine. Wow. Yeah. I'm actually allergic to morphine. Just so you know, okay. if I ever visit your office, I am allergic to morphine. All right. We don't use soul morphine. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I um, break out in hives. Oh, really? I, yeah. Wow. Which a lot of people, I think with Demerol, it's the same thing. Like they're allergic to Demerol, so mm-hmm. they use morphine. And right. It's, yeah. Vice versa. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that wasn't fun learning that fact. Um, you should write a book, Dr. Jensen. All right. I have. You have written a book. I have written I a know, book. I know. That's where I was going with this. <laughs> uh, uh, what was the motivation writing a book? So the the first book I wrote was uh, actually a, uh, more for plastic surgeons, so it wasn't for the general public. Mm-hmm. So it is actually a book on board preparation. and just Board? Prepa- board. Preparing for the boards. So you have to take the boards to become a board-certified plastic surgeon. Gotcha. And there was nothing out there that 
was available, general surgery, they had this book that was awesome, and so I called up the Little and Brown, the publisher in New York, said, hey, we have this idea, you already know what it is. Uh, and they said, okay, who are you? I said, well, I'm a resident in plastic surgery. <laughs> and they said, well, we need somebody else. So uh, I said, okay, I'll ask my program director. And they said, fine. And so the two of us co-authored the book. And Nice. Yeah. Well, what's the title? Uh, Review of Plastic Surgery. Review of Plastic Surgery. Yeah. That'll be my nighttime read yeah. for a while. <laughs> put you right to sleep in about <laughs> yes. two seconds. Snooze fest. <laughs> No need for a sleeping aid. I'll just, re no, I'm just kidding. So that was first book, uh -huh. Hair that, Flip. What was the second book? So I worked on, so there. I don't know if you'd really call them, I mean, they're books. They have ISBN numbers. They're more reference material. Okay. So uh, again, there, I, I, you know, when you, whenever you do a procedure, you have to code for it to get to billing, to bill it. You have to, there's two different, three different codes you have to use. So you have three different books. So you have to look up what the diagnosis is. That's okay. one code. Then you have to look up in another book what the procedure is you did. That's the second code. And then you have to look up a third code, which is what the, what the RVUs are, what you bill for it. And that's how you create the price of the and, surgery? Correct. Okay. And so you look all three, but you have three big volumes. So what I, and then it's for all of medicine. So what I did was take all three codes and combine them and put them in a smaller handbook for each uh, practice, like plastic surgery, orthopedic, ENT, and general surgery. Interesting. And so you take three big volumes, you flip to one page, there are all three codes, you don't have to go through three volumes. It's like a Cliff Notes kind of yeah. so for surgery. Yeah, so it's McGraw-Hill published that for a number of years and then. Okay. Now uh, it's all electronic, so you don't need books. Don't need books anymore. Mm -hmm. It's kind of sad. Yeah. There's something fun about pulling down a big research book and digging through it. <laughs> and now you can just Google everything. Yeah, pretty much. Kind of annoying sometimes. Um, is that all the books you've written? Correct. Well, I'm working on one. But You're working on oh, a yeah. book. Oh, what yeah. are you working on? Uh, is it a secret? No, I mean, I talk to my patients about it all the time. I mean, it, it's more of a book on, on weight loss because um, I have a lot of patients that come to me first time that want they're kind of lost to what to do. They, they want something done like liposuction or something to help with their weight. Okay. But they're not candidates for it because plastic surgery isn't about weight loss. It's about taking care of things after the weight has been lost. Okay. And so I haven't, there was not, there's nothing out there really that I felt comfortable handing them, either a booklet form or a book that really addressed uh, how to lose weight. Interesting. So what we, we're doing now is we're interviewing all these patients that have lost the weight, that have lost 25, 50, 100 pounds, and ask them how they did it and what diet or techniques or whatever. Whatever they did, how did you lose the weight and keep it off for one or two years? Because diets don't work. You know, anything that's calorie-restricted doesn't work. So asking, so get, we've been collecting a lot of information. It's really interesting to see what r works and what doesn't. And hmm. we're going to take that information and basically, again, create principles and so that we can hand to patients and say, this is works because we know it works. And a do this first and then come back to me or? So uh, we're, I mean, I'll, I've, 
learned so much from my patients that I, I think I can tell patients now what works, mm -hmm. but I'm working on creating an actual hard copy that I can give them. Nice. So that they can, I can just hand it to them, give it to them and say, here's everything I know and I know it works and it'll work for you. Right. Weight loss is, ugh, it's such a huge issue. Huge. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the biggest health issue right now in the United States. Right. Most studies show that if you're obese, it leads to so many health problems. And you're right. Dieting is stupid. You have to, it has to be a lifestyle change. Well, you know, the sad part about it all and very embarrassing is that the medical community still believes that telling a patient eat less, work out more is going to work. And if it was that easy, we wouldn't have an obesity problem. Right. So it doesn't work. So again, what, what is the issue? And, and that's another big question that I've been asking myself and doing a lot of research in. Why are, why is our population getting so overweight right. at this point? Why is it, I mean, it's kind of stabilized now. We're not seeing a lot more, but still, you know, 70% of the population is overweight, 30% are obese. And you're seeing a lot more, the worrisome part too, is you're seeing a lot more in, in kids. Yes, in, that's in really children. sad. Yeah. Why are we getting overweight? Is it food? Is it diet? I, it, you know, I've never run into a person that wanted to be overweight. Sure. And I think, uh, you know, again, I think we have a tendency as a society to blame people. You know, doctors put the blame on patients. Nutritionists put the blame on patients. And the patients put the blame on themselves yeah. because of that. But it's not really their fault because it's not about eating too much. It, it, I think it's more about the type of calories that, mm -hmm. that are available. And, and it's the refined sugars, uh, carbs, yeah. pasta, uh, huge are, are soft drinks, sweetened juices, For yogurts, sure. basically simple carbs. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they're so abundantly available and so cheap. And, and you'll see a lot higher incidence of obesity in the underprivileged because that's all they can afford. They yeah. can't afford good food. That's what drives me crazy when I hear interviews with nutritionists. You know, this is what you need to be eating. And I know a lot of the population just even here in Southern Oregon, they can't afford no. to eat that way. No. That's the problem. It's, you know, macaroni and cheese in a box is right. way cheaper than, right. you know, buying right. bags of kale and right. whatever. Well, two liter bottle of soda for 97 cents. I exactly. Mean, it's just, yeah, I think. So again, I think it's if, the, the problem with simple carbs is they stimulate insulin. Mm -hmm. And insulin's what makes you fat. So the more simple carbs, and you can be starving for other nutrients and you eat simple carbs, they're still gonna go to fat. Whereas protein is much, much less stimulating for insulin and fat basically doesn't stimulate insulin. And that's why the keto diet works so well, mm -hmm. because you're, you're replacing those carbs with fats. And so you can eat pretty much about the same amount of calories in fats, but fat's more satiating. So you don't want to eat as much. You're not hungry. You're not as hungry. So right. it, it helps reduce those hunger uh, pains. But if you replace those simple carbs with fat the, and, and go into ketosis, which is a very healthy state, 
And you'll hear nutritionists who don't understand it think of that it's ketoacidosis. Well, that's what happens when you get out of whack in, yes. in diabetes. Right. But keto, ketosis is a very healthy state. It's very good for your brain. Okay. And, so it, and it just burns off the fat. If you can get in there, the fat will just come off and you won't be hungry. You just so. perked up a little bit when we started talking <laughs> about this. Yeah. This is a kind of a passion for it you. It is a passion, yeah. 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 We, um, I think uh, keto diet is very similar to the paleo diet. Similar. Right. Uh, I think, uh, again, the paleo is more uh, protein focused. Yes. Whereas ketosis, to get into it, you're going to probably want to do 70% of your calories, macro calories from fat. 20% from protein is all, and 10% from, from uh, mm -hmm. carbohydrates. And good fat. We're talking about good, healthy fats. Well, that's a, another big misconception. I think, you know, another huge problem with uh, our medical establishment has been this push for low-fat diets. Yeah. Since the 60s, 70s. And if you follow it along, that process has coincided with the increase in obesity. Mm-hmm. And it's because all those fats have been replaced with carbs. When you buy a, a low-fat whatever, it doesn't have much fat in it, but it has a ton of carbs. Mm -hmm. So everything's been re So, again, fats were demonized. Saturated fats, butter. Totally. Uh, steak. And they're not bad for you. If you go on a keto diet and your, your cholesterol levels will drop, your triglyceride levels, mm -hmm. it's actually a lot healthier for you then carbs. Carbs do the exact opposite. Those are the things that raise your cholesterol. Those yeah. are the things that cause heart disease, right? dementia, Alzheimer's. Exactly. We, uh, my husband and I did paleo. We started this several years ago, mm -hmm. mainly because of his cholesterol. That dropped. Uh, he lost 20 pounds. We cut out sugar yep. and our complete, uh, that's why I say it's a lifestyle change. It's not a diet. It's right. the way that you are eating every day changes. So it's eating eggs and bacon and avocado in the morning, yep. like just really good fats. fats. Right. And there and are really no bad fats other than man-made fats. Exactly. The only bad fats are the trans fats or other fats that, that are manufactured. Mm -hmm. so. Isn't it, it's insane to think about that now, you know, butter was demonized mm -hmm. and then margarine came on right. the Right. Which was 10 times worse for you. Right. Yeah. Margarine is awful and gross yeah. and don't use margarine, people. Use butter. <laughs> exactly. Use like real butter, like yeah. real, it's Cook real with food. It. Yeah. yeah. Don't, don't use canola oil or any of those. No. 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 Not. Get away from that. Yep. Okay. So when's this book coming out? Oh, it, the <laughs> earliest, earliest would probably be two years because okay. I think it's going to take a full another year of research and putting a book proposal together. Sure. Um, and then writing the book will probably take a full another year. That's kind of fun. That's a fun little project. Yeah. I mean, it, even if it doesn't get published, uh, to me, I'll have something to hand patients that if mm. it happens, you know, ha helps anybody, it'll be worth it. I like that approach. That's a nice approach. Will you come back when the book is done? Absolutely. Yay. Okay. <laughs> that's good. Um, one quick question before we wrap up. I'm just curious what you hear from your patients, what works for them in weight loss? So. It's just what you'd expect. Keto, I hear a lot. Intermittent fasting works. Okay. You know, almost everybody is taking sweet drinks out of their diet. And just doing that alone for a lot of people, they lose 20 pounds. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, juices, sodas. So, I mean, it's it, it's mostly along those lines. I'd say the top one is low-carbohydrate diet mm -hmm. and intermittent fasting. And also portion control. So I was a little shocked. I didn't think... 
portion control would be a big factor, but a lot of people it is a big factor. They, you know, they eat half of what they used to. Right, because your stomach tends to just get a little smaller, smaller. and you don't need as much than you used to. Very interesting. Well, good luck with the book. We're wrapping up with the final three. You were prepped on these, right? Yeah. (laughs) Don't sound too excited. Um, All right, best advice you've ever been given. Oh, I, I think that's really hard because I've, I've had uh, my mom and my grandfather give a lot of really good advice. But as far as a surgeon goes, I think the best advice I got was a, from a doctor, Dennis Philippone in New Jersey, who was one of my mentors in general surgery. And you could operate with him. Uh, and as a resident, you know, you're just learning. He'd make you feel like you were a star surgeon, mm. it, just the way he knew how to help you. But... You know, he over and over again, he'd just emphasize, you know, you guys got to just pay meticulous attention to detail when you're operating. And right. So, so. Uh, I had a professor in college who said there are two things that separate uh, professionals from amateurs, and it's a sense of routine and attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And that has always stuck with me in every facet of life. I'm curious what kind of advice your mom gave you. I love mom advice. Oh, so she'd always kind of reiterate things my grandfather. He was kind of a uh, a very successful businessman. Did you know him growing yeah. up? Was he alive? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so he was very successful. But, uh, you know, two things that stuck out that he taught or through she taught me was, you know, simple financial stuff. Don't ever spend more than you make. Mm. And... Uh, the other one was, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you do in, in life, just do it the very best. Mm, that's good, good yeah. advice yeah. from grandfather and yeah. mom. Yeah. I like it. Um, okay, I know the final three questions always turn more into like the final 50 questions, but whatever. It's my podcast. Um, if you ever left this place, Southern Oregon, what would bring you back here? What would you miss the most? The trees. They remind you of Canada? Yeah. I mean, just the ponderosa, the green, the trees, the outdoors. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I don't like, I mean, I like visiting big cities, but I don't like living in big crowds. So it's the, the solitude, mm-hmm. being able to get out of town and enjoy the woods. Is there something, um, I'm sure you probably do, you travel and go on business trips and stuff like that. When you fly back in to the Rogue Valley, it's just like. <sighs> Oftentimes, yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. There's just no place like home. Yeah. Um, if you were ever given a final meal. And a final drink. What would that look like? A keto. <laughs> Big steak. Uh, nice glass of red wine. Mm. And You're speaking my language. <laughs> what on the side? Anything on the side? No, veggies. Veggies. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite cut of steak right now? Probably a, uh, I'm blocking on the name of it. Uh, well, help me because I know, I know sir- lots of cuts. Not, not sirloin? No, what's the fattest one? Oh, ribeye. Ribeye. Mm. There you go. Thank you. Do you do a bone-in or boneless ribeye? Bone-out. Bone-out. Same here because you just want to eat. Mm-hmm. The, the fat on a ribeye when it's cooked right, it's like butter. Yeah. That's probably one of my favorites right now is ribeye. And then filet. We could talk about steak. <laughs> I, uh, sorry, one last question. I love food. What do you eat for breakfast typically? What's your typical breakfast? I don't. <gasps> because. Dr. Jensen, you don't eat breakfast. Do you know why? Because I do intermittent fasting. Oh, okay. What uh, so is that? 
And uh, so there's different ways to do it. I, the one that works best for me is you eat from like, you eat for six hours a day. So you eat from 11, so you can have lunch and uh -huh. dinner, and then don't eat anything after dinner. That's until it. Until the next lunch. Hmm. And it's, you know who came up with breakfast is the most important? Who? Kellogg's. <laughs> I should have known. <laughs> Sugary sweet cereal first thing in the morning, yeah. which is funny. I just gave you crap, but I don't eat breakfast either. Okay. So, so I don't think, yeah, I don't, it's not the most important meal of the day. It's not. No. You heard it here, folks. Yeah. It's not the That's most important. That's a big misconception. Okay. So lunch is typically what? Uh, salmon and salad or uh, sometimes... Uh, hamburger without the bun. Yeah, I'm veggies. a big fan of bunless burgers. Yeah. Mm. All right. So you're going to come back when the book is yep. when the book is done. Yep. Okay. I'm going to hold you to it. All right. And I can call you Dr. J, right? You can call me Bob. Oh, I like Dr. J. Okay, that's fine. Okay. Bob or Dr. J. Yeah, he's, he's ready to get out of here, folks. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play, and you can ask your Alexa app to play off script. Check out the video portion of this podcast on ktvl.com. Just click on features and then off script. One more time, Dr. Bob Jensen. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.